Well, good morning again. I want to mention a couple of more things before we get at the sermon. Uh, one is the Central Texas Men's Conference is coming up in uh, the end of January. It's January 27th through 29. Men, this is a great way to connect with some other guys and to grow in your faith. I would highly recommend this. A lot of times the guys uh, feel a little less connected than their wives if they've been gone a lot or deployed. And so I would recommend this to you. There's brochures in the hallway. Uh, and that should be a great opportunity. Um, also, just want to mention to Carolee and John Edwards, this is their last Sunday. I think they're in Sunday school right now, but if you get a chance to go hug their neck, we gave them a little gift and embarrassed them already in the first service. But uh, if you can go, make sure you say hello to them in the parking lot or whatever before they leave and make sure they know that they will be missed. They've been a blessing to us serving here over the last few years. Uh, we will be in Malachi chapter 4 today. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Malachi chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible and want to follow along, it's, uh, there's a black Bible under the chairs probably nearby to you, and it's page 802. Page 802 there is Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and our theme today is hope. We're following some traditional themes that people observe during the Advent time. Oftentimes these themes are associated with an Advent wreath and the lighting of different candles as a way of remembering the things that Jesus brings into our life at Advent time when He first appeared 2,000 years ago. Today we want to talk about hope, and hope implies that there's something missing, right? Hope is a good word, it's a positive word, it's a word about what we look forward to, And so the implication is we're looking forward to something better because we're in the midst of something not so good right now, right? For many of you, as you struggle, as you're going through hard times, you hope that it will get better. You look forward to something more. And that's what the people of God were doing, especially in the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. There was this huge gap of nothingness. There was this long waiting. And I want us to try to kind of feel what that was like for God's Old Testament people as they were waiting over many, many years, waiting for God to to show back up, waiting for God to do something, waiting for God to speak into their lives. I remember a time when my family had hope and and a very temporary thing, a small thing that maybe you have hoped in before. We were uh, very excited about our first house. Uh, the first house that we bought, we're only in our second house at this point in our life, but the first house that we had bought, it was very exciting. We went to look, and it looked great, and it looked beautiful and, and cute, and we knew we had to fix it up, right? But that, that was okay. We, we, were, we were good with that. And so we returned back to uh, where we were living at the time. We were in sort of an exile, I guess, of sorts in the Midwest. We're Texans, and so it was nice to get to come back home come back and buy a home. And I'll never forget the moment of driving up to the house that we had just spent, you know, the largest amount of money we'd ever spend on anything to, to buy. And when we drove up, it didn't look the same as when we had visited it, right? When someone's trying to sell a house, it looks completely different than when someone has just vacated and moved away from a house, right? But there's a big difference there. And so when we had first looked at it, I believe it was May 1st, and when we moved in, it was June 1st. And from May 1st to June 1st, lots of grass grows in Central Texas. 
So there were weeds about this high, right, in the front yard. Um, they had trimmed some trees. You know, I guess they were trying to get it ready for us, trimming trees, getting them off the roof, but just kind of threw them in the front yard. So there's all these dead limbs laying in our front yard. The, the weeds are up to here. Things kind of seemed in disarray. The house that had seemed so cute and pretty and well decorated when we looked at it on the inside was now empty and there was cat hair and dust and, you know, just kind of gross. Um, there were uh, some neighbor kids across the street. I remember right when we drove up, like, you know, like sassing us and pointing their guns at us and stuff like that. And, you know, it was just the, the, whole, the whole image just wasn't what we expected it to be. And the Old Testament people of God had a similar dynamic. Their house had been destroyed. They'd been chased out of Jerusalem because of their sin. And then something amazing happened. God returned them and He gave them a new house. Jerusalem was rebuilt. God's temple was rebuilt. And yet it still, it still wasn't quite right. It still didn't live up to all their hopes. There was still something missing. And as I said, from that time of getting their dream home, getting their city rebuilt, to the actual coming of Jesus was over 400 years. There's this huge gap, this huge longing, this huge waiting for Jesus to come and fill their house. So let's read all of that as background. Let's read Malachi 4. Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament and he's speaking into this community that lives at the time of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So God's people have been thrown out of Jerusalem, they've been in sin, now they've returned, and Malachi is speaking to those people in that context who have everything rebuilt, everything's coming back together, everything seems good, but Malachi says, you're still missing some pieces here. There's still some problems, there's still some longing and some hope. Malachi 4 says, For behold, the day is coming, still coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come out and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Luke one seventeen says that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that promise that Elijah was coming to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And Christmas is a time when we celebrate that coming that's prophesied here. That yes, Jerusalem's been rebuilt. Yes, the temple's been rebuilt. Yes, my people have been reestablished in their place. But there's still something missing. And that's God Himself, Emmanuel, the God that would dwell with us. Let me pray for us and we'll uh, unpack this looking and jumping around and look at some other texts as well. God, we pray that You would teach us this morning. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for what You've done uh, in history, giving a name for Yourself. Lord, we thank You that we're actually a part of what You're doing in history, that You want to change us and You want to use us to give glory to You, to show the good life, a life lived uh, in submission to You, Enjoy walking with you. God, help us to figure out what that looks like. We pray because of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we think about 
the story and the flow of the whole Bible and the Old Testament, this connection from Old Testament to New Testament, I wanted to recommend some some resources to you. Uh, here are five books, and I don't recommend you read all five at the same time, but they're all about the same subject. Uh, there's one called A Book You'll Actually Read on the Old Testament. It's nice and short, and hence the title, A Book You'll Actually Read. There's another one called Preaching Christ in All of Scripture. One is called God's Big Picture. One is called, called According to Plan. And then this one's called The Drama of Scripture. All of these books are trying to do basically the same thing, which is to help us to see that the Bible is one story. Because oftentimes, it's such a big story, it's such a long book, we read a few verses here, we read a few verses there, or even we read a whole book, but it's hard to connect it all together. It's hard for us to see that flow. And So these are books that try to do that for you. They're, they're kind of in order from easy to harder there. And if you want to look at those after the service, you could flip through those and maybe write down some of those titles if you're interested in further study. But that's something that's been helpful for me in my own understanding of the Bible is understanding how it all goes together, how God is really working one big story of redemption, this kind of creation, fall, redemption flow. And, and if we're going to look at the hope of God's people, what we need to start with if we're going to understand this point between the testaments from Malachi to Matthew, what we need to understand is the fall. How did, how did they go into disarray in the first place? And so what I want you to look at first is 2 Corinthians 36. I want to go there. It's kind of the end of the, the uh, historical chronology of everything that's gone on in the people of Israel before they're completely decimated. Second Corinthians, or Second Chronicles, excuse me, Second Chronicles. Did I say that right? It's in the Old Testament. Second Chronicles 36. It's page 388. Um, I know a lot of you probably don't do a lot of devotions in Chronicles, so if you want to just cheat and grab the Black Bible, it's page 388. And what we see is the fall of God's house. As I, as I said, you know, for something to get good, there's the implication that there's something bad going on. And, and before they even returned and rebuilt the city and rebuilt their house, uh, first the house was destroyed. So that's what we see. We see all the sin that's gone on through the history of the kings. If you've ever read First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles, it's just a story of everything going wrong. It's just a story of, of God's people rebelling against Him. He said, walk with me and you'll have joy and peace and happiness. And they say, no, we'd, we'd rather do our own thing. And they reject Him and turn the other way. Second Chronicles... Now I've got to find it too. Alright, 36.15... The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. So it says God, He, he sent messengers, he, he gives His word because He loves us, because He has compassion on us. Verse 16, But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words and scoffing at His prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, this is the Babylonians, right? Who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hands. See the contrast between the great king of the universe, the God of the universe, who sends messengers with compassion, and the God of the empires of this world who have no compassion, and who just shut them down, who cut them down in their sin. Verse 18, it says, And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. 
He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. He's saying they never really rested. They never trusted his grace, and so they never rested personally or let the land rest. And he's saying now, because they sinned and walked away from God, now the land finally rested because it just lay there desolate for all these years, for 70 years. And so we see the fall of God's house. We see the destruction. The way that Romans 1 describes um, the wrath of God being poured out on mankind is not that God is like standing there with a stick and when we sin, He whacks us, right? Because that's how we normally, or maybe you're not as twisted as me, but that's how I normally think about it, right? But, But what really what we see in the Scriptures is that when we sin and when we continue to rebel against God, God's wrath being poured out against us is to give us over to our desires. That's what Romans 1 says, is that as we continue to tell God, I don't want you in my life, I don't want you in my life, God says, okay, we'll go ahead and do your own thing. And that's what we see here in Second Chronicles 36 as well. The judgment, the wrath of God as He, he gives them over. Okay, well, go, go fight your own wars then. Go, go do your own thing. Go win your own battles. You don't need me anymore. And Jerusalem's utterly destroyed. His house is torn down. Their city is burned. Everything is gone. And basically they've hit rock bottom. They've hit the end. I've been reading a book lately called Redemption, which is a book I would recommend to you. It's on kind of recovery and working through uh, hitting rock bottom personally in your own life. One of the interesting things that the author, Mike Wilkerson, talks about is how we keep hitting new rock bottoms in our life and how it's really not a good idea to wait for a rock bottom to get your stuff together. And so, so I want to encourage you with that this morning. Don't wait until you've hit rock bottom because you can always go farther than you thought. You, you can always go lower. You can always sink more. It's the interesting thing about human beings. I have a, a picture here of a, of a gorge. And one of the things you know if you camp a lot is that you shouldn't camp at rock bottom, right? <laughs> Any of you ever been camping in a, in a desert place? You, you don't set up a campsite down there in that dry riverbed because you never know when a flash flood could come. Right? It's one of the things that, that people are adapting to living in central Texas. You know, it doesn't rain for nine months and then it just rains nonstop for a week and we have flash flooding. Well, in the desert it's even worse. It's, it's much more severe and you have this dry riverbed and you think, oh, this will be a beautiful place to camp. seems kind of cozy down here and then it rains and your tent's flooding and being, being washed away completely. And so there's, there's this important principle here that you don't, you don't want to stay there, right? You don't want to camp out there. I remember one time we went camping at Mother Neff Park and it actually worked out. We just, for some reason, I, I remembered that little lesson I'd learned when I was a Boy Scout and we, we put our tent on a little high ground and it rained like crazy that, that night. Everybody else's tent was filled up with water and me and my son woke up the next morning having slept well through the whole night and we were fine. You know, everything was cool. Everybody was so mad at me. I was like, oh, I just... Just kind of random, you know. It was it was uh, God's grace. I normally don't don't remember things like that. But what I want to what I want to do this morning is try to kind of help you understand what to do when you're in that place. Again, for one thing, don't don't keep waiting. Don't think, well, maybe I could go lower and then I'll ask God for help. First of all, stop where you are and, and recognize that you've messed up, that you're missing God, that you need Him in your life. Don't. Keep going farther. Don't keep sliding farther. Don't think, well, I've already messed up and God's mad at me, so I might as well just enjoy this a little longer. No, stop. 
Recognize that, that you're hurting yourself. Recognizing that it's causing pain and grief. No matter what sin it is, we all have our pet sins, these things that we become addicted to, and we think, I never thought I'd go there. I never thought I'd do this. And the scriptural admonishment is to stop and repent. Don't wait for it to get worse, but call out to God. God is a merciful God, and He will forgive, and He will restore. And that's what we see in the life of Israel, and that's what we see in the New Testament as well. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Just repent. That just means admit it. Say, I'm going the wrong direction. I need you, God. I don't want to do this anymore. And He will help you. He will meet you there. He'll help you move through it. This, this works itself out in our human relationships as well. But one of the problems that we often have when we have hit rock bottom, when we have sinned, when we have turned away from God, is we often want to blame it on other people. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe I'm the only one that does that. But Adam and Eve did it too. So me, Adam and Eve, maybe a few of you. But, but there is this, there's this thing where we say, it, was, it wasn't me, it was that woman you gave me, God, right? And Eve says, it was that serpent, it was that monster. And, and we're always blaming it on someone else. And what I want to say to you this morning is, I, I know that people have sinned against you. I know that some of you have been abused in, in terrible ways that, that I have not experienced that I couldn't imagine. And those things are valid. And you're going to need to work through those things. But you, you also need to, to realize that, that you've made mistakes as well. You need to not blame your mistakes on other people's sin. It doesn't mean those things are not valid. It doesn't mean you don't need to work through that. But, but you need to come to terms with what you've done wrong. And you need to confess and admit and say, I've, I've messed up. And this works itself out in our relationships. If you're married, you, you don't say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, honey, that I yelled at you. But really, if you weren't such an ag, I wouldn't, I wouldn't yell at you, right? That, that's not real confession, right? That's not, that's not an apology, guys. I'm sorry, your wife's probably elbowing you right now because you probably just did that yesterday. That, that's not the way to do it. And, and wives sometimes do the same thing. We, we do this in all kinds of relationships. Maybe even if you're not married, you do this with a friend. Just, just admit that you were wrong. You, you don't have to go to accusing the other person. You just have to say, I was wrong. It's really that simple. When you hit bottom, when you do something you've regretted, just, just say, I regret that. I'm sorry that I did that. I was wrong. Will you, will you forgive me? That, that was wrong of me. Teach your kids that as well. Teach your kids. You've got, you got to train them in that habit. One of the ways that we do that with our kids is not, I don't need the explanation. Just say yes sir, yes ma'am. Just say I'm sorry. Just say okay, I know that was wrong. Well, let's, let's keep it focused on that issue. And then if you want to talk more about it later, then you can say, can we talk about this? And you, then you make the appeal. But, but deal with it as it is first. Train your kids to do that. Do that in your own relationships and your own friendships. When you've messed up, just say it. I've messed up. That was wrong. Well, as the Israelites began to regret their sin, began to regret walking away from God, after 70 years of exile, God began to move in the hearts of, of the kings of these great empires. And they started making proclamations and saying, I think God wants me to set up a house and a place for the, the people of Judah. And so we have this proclamation. If you follow Second Chronicles 36, down in verse 22, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, because Jeremiah said after 70 years this would happen. 
It says, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah is this taking place. It's actually many years later when it started to really take place and we get a lot of information about that under a different king with Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah was basically a governor. Ezra was a, was a priest. And they begin to rebuild. So then we see the restoration of God's house. And so we see happening in the people and in the country of Israel what happens in our own lives as individuals, right? We, we recognize our sin. We've turned away from God. Our lives are in disarray. When we confess that, when we admit that, God begins to restore. God in His mercy allows us to rebuild. And that's what He did with the people of God. If, if you turn to Nehemiah chapter 8, another favorite. I'm sure some of you have been doing devotionals there. Nehemiah chapter 8 is page 403 in the Black Bibles under the chairs. I know this is not really fair because I get to put paper clips in my Bible before the service, so I'll give you a chance to, to flip over to that if you want. It's page 403. It's Nehemiah chapter 8. We, we begin to see this restoration take place. So we have the restoration of God's house. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Guys, this is so key. This is what restoration looks like both for the people of God as, as a nation, as a, as a corporate entity, but also for us individually, restoration has to be connected to His book. Okay, We have to begin to listen to Him. Right? The problem before was that we weren't listening to Him, that we rejected Him, that we turned our own way, and He let us do our own thing, and it caused destruction. Now, when we want to rebuild, when we want to get our stuff together, we have to listen to Him. We have to actually pay attention to His book. And so the people called for Ezra, this teacher. Verse 2 says, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women, and all those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they made for the purpose. And so what we see is this massive Bible teaching going on. They built a platform, they had a stage, a pulpit from which to preach, and Ezra is teaching them God's Word. And it says from, from early morning until noon. That's like a six-hour sermon, right? Wouldn't y'all love that? We could stretch this out a little more if, if, if you wanted to. But actually, when we read the rest of it, I think what we see is it's more like a Bible conference because we start to see other things happening. That this is the summary that he taught for six hours, but then it, it fleshes out the details for us. And it talks about other teachers helping him and them dividing into small groups and worship is happening and all these other things. So there's, this is an interactive service. It's about 50,000 people. It's like an arena of people that are gathering to rebuild their nation, to rebuild their people, to get their life back together, to begin the restoration process of walking with God now and listening to His Word. So it says in verse 4, And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose. And beside him stood these other guys. And then in verse 5, it says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people then stood. You see them bodily responding. This is like what we do in worship. We stand, we sit, we raise hands, we bow our heads, we respond, and we sing in worship. It says in verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. 
And then they bowed their heads and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 7 tells us, And then these were these other guys who helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. So again, these Levites, these assistants, these other teachers go out and they begin shepherding people and they begin relating to people one-on-one. And this is, again, parallel to what we try uh, to to pull off here as a church where we think it's important to teach God's Word and gather to worship in, in corporate settings, but also that we would gather in smaller groups, that we would understand intimately that there would be counseling and that there would be home groups and there would be classes where, where there's a little more relating happening and people are understanding it more clearly. It says in verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Again, the fleshing out is not just Ezra just preaching for six hours, but these other teachers are giving the sense, giving the meaning, helping explain it. There's interaction going on, there's worship happening, and the people of God are, are being restored. I have a picture here of a guy remodeling a house, uh, and he's cutting some boards. If you've ever remodeled something or built something, you know, a lot of times it, it, uh, it costs something, right? You have to spend a lot of money. There's a lot of sweat. There's a lot of pain. Um, in, in my case, lots of sweat, blood, and pain were involved when I was remodeling my house. And it can be a painful process. Again, as we see the people of God restoring their nation, restoring God's presence as a people, also individually we see the same thing. As we are being restored, as we are beginning to rebuild our lives according to God's Word, it can be a painful process. There can be a lot of, a lot of sawdust involved, right? There's a lot of cutting, there's a lot of lifting, there's a lot, of, a lot of hard things that need to take place as we begin to be restored according to God's Word. There's two huge applications I see in the text from Nehemiah 8 that describe what it looks like for us to be restored, for us to respond to God's goodness in our life and His restoration. It's to celebrate God's grace and then also share that with others. Okay, so the first is for us to enjoy it for ourselves and to celebrate it, to rejoice in that, and then to share that and help others. We sometimes have resources that others don't have, so we can help others to celebrate maybe when they're not yet able to. Look at verse 9 in Nehemiah chapter 8. Verse 9 says, And Nehemiah, who is the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. And so, so far in the story, we've had massive Bible conference, people learning in small groups, people learning in big gatherings, people worshiping. We don't have a lot of weeping yet, right? But here they're saying, don't weep. Don't mourn, don't weep. And the reason is because they're weeping and mourning. Sometimes that's a very natural response to God's Word, right? The very next clause, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Verse 9 says, they're telling them, don't weep, don't mourn. Stop grieving over your mistakes. And I want to encourage you, as you begin to try to live your life in, in line with God's Word, there's going to be a great temptation to just spend all your time mourning lost years. Especially if you're older. You're just going to regret. You know, I'm, I'm so frustrated I didn't do it the right way the first time. I'm, I'm frustrated with myself that I, I wasted time, that I hurt people, that I, I did the wrong things. And, and what they're saying here is they're saying, hey, focus, focus on the good here. Yes, of course it's proper that you would weep and grieve and mourn and repent. But turn from your sin and begin to celebrate what God is doing in your life. Don't just stop in the weeping. I don't think Nehemiah and Ezra are saying, don't ever weep ever any time. Don't ever look at anything bad. They're saying, stop with the weeping. You've already done. That's enough. You've cried already. Now celebrate God's goodness in your life. And he gives them very specific instructions. 
He says in verse 2, Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. Joked about how I love this verse, because my wife doesn't like me to eat the fat, and here it is. It's right in the Bible. So eat the fat. Drink the sweet wine. He's saying celebrate. This is basically what we do at Christmas time, right? We have parties. We celebrate. We have sweets. We have good food. And, and he's saying that's appropriate and that's right. Yes, of course it's appropriate to repent and to mourn of your sin. You should grieve. But once you've grieved over your sin, then you move to celebration of God's grace and His goodness to you. And it also says, not just that, but send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So there we have those two, those two pieces. Because of God's grace, because the joy of the Lord is your strength, celebrate, party, and help others too as well. You may have resources to send portions to others. Maybe they don't have anything. Maybe they can't celebrate. Help other people celebrate. Christians have always been marked by sharing their material goods with each other so that others can celebrate as well. And there are so many ministries and so many of you are involved in, in so many different ways of doing this in the community. Helping others to celebrate God's Goodness, by meeting people at their point of need. But that, that's just like two huge applications for us. Are you celebrating God's grace in your life? In whatever way? I mean, I'd like to say this is the only way to do it, just eating fat and drinking wine. There's other ways to do it too, right? And there's many other ways to celebrate God's goodness. That's part of what we do when we sing and praise God together in corporate worship. But celebrate His goodness to you. Rejoice in what He's done for you. And then find ways to, to help other people do that as well. Find ways to extend a great missions book written by John Piper called Let the Nations Be Glad. And what he says is that missions exist because worship doesn't in some places. And that's really what missions is. It's extending the worship of God. Helping others to worship and celebrate His goodness. Well, the last thing that we see is even while all these amazing things that are happening in Ezra and Nehemiah, there's, there's still some things that are missing. There's still some things that are missing. You have this beautiful ministry here. He tells them to celebrate. He tells them the joy of the Lord is your strength. Verse 11, So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions. And they made great rejoicing, because they would understood the words that were declared to them. Because they would understood God's word, they were able to carry it out. And it's this beautiful picture again of, of these, like what we have, small group shepherds and counselors who are caring for the people. It says the Levites were, were caring for them, saying, be quiet, it's, it's going to be okay. And you see people being loved one-on-one. And I want to encourage you again, as you grow in your faith, make sure you're not just hearing God's Word. Make sure you're not just going to the Bible conference where you hear someone teaching from the platform, or where you listen, or you read the books and get the information, but make sure you're also doing these interactive things. You're meeting with people one-on-one. You're, you're counseling with someone. You're in a small group. You're in some kind of situation where you can really get the sense of it and understand individually what God wants to do in your life. Well, they're still, they're still in completion because Malachi, we'll go back to Malachi 4 now. Malachi, the name literally means the messenger. Some people actually think Malachi is Ezra. We're not really sure. It's not really clear in the text. Some scholars think Malachi was just his name. His name was just messenger. Other people think it was like a title and that it was actually Ezra. But we know he was speaking into the same time period as Ezra and Nehemiah. So we have this time period of the rebuilding of God's people, the rebuilding of God's house, and yet it's still incomplete. It's, it's still not there yet. They're still missing something, and that's where that, that prophecy of Malachi 4 
comes into play. And I'm going to read it one more time. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. So God's temple, His place, the city, His people are being rebuilt, but there's still evil in the world. And we find ourselves in a parallel position, right? Jesus has come and we have salvation, we have confidence in Him, but there's still evil all around. There's still a brokenness out there. He says, The day is coming when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. It will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I love that picture. Have you ever seen a calf leaping? Have you ever seen that? Cows don't dance a lot, but little calves sometimes do. You take this incredibly goofy creature and it's like dancing and jumping around. And God is saying, that's what we're going to be like, right? This goofy, strange thing, jumping, dancing for joy. It says, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. There's obviously something still missing, right? It still wasn't complete. So when the Old Testament people of God met Jesus, they'd been waiting for 400 years. And the last thing that they had heard was from Malachi, the last prophet. He said, even though your place has been rebuilt, even though your temple has been reestablished, you're still missing something. You still don't have the Messiah. You still don't have His Word in your heart. You still don't have this... this uh, inside-out relationship with God. And that's what Jesus came to explain, to teach. One of the illustrations that Jesus used for this, this where the house is beautiful but there's still something missing, is He used the, the picture of the whitewashed tomb. I have a picture of the Taj Mahal here. The Taj Mahal is this famous mausoleum in India, and it's basically a giant tomb. It's this really beautiful building, but it's full of death. right? And Jesus says... That if we pursue religion apart from a heart relationship with God, that only Jesus and only His Spirit can work in our lives, then we're basically a whitewashed tomb. We might look real pretty on the outside, but we're broken on the inside. So at the beginning we were talking about people hitting rock bottom and people wallowing in their sin and how how much deeper we can go. And and here I want to talk to those of you who who have been religious most of your life. If you've basically followed the rules... Beware of being the whitewashed tomb. Beware of being someone who's got the polished marble on the outside, but on the inside you're still dead. Because we see this again corporately in the people of God. The the house was rebuilt. The city was reestablished. But but Malachi comes to them and he's saying, you're still not there yet. You're still not there. You're still empty. There's still death on the inside. My former pastor used to talk about how Leaders in ministry oftentimes would get fixated on whatever institution they grew in Christ or first met Christ with. So if, uh, if they first came, became a Christian in, in this kind of camp or in this kind of campus ministry or in this kind of church, then for the rest of their life that, that just kind of clouded their judgment and everybody needed to do it this way, right? Everybody needed to follow this institution's rules. Everybody needed to join this Christian club. Or everybody needed to do this kind of ministry. And he always thought that was interesting because God 
God can use any of these ministries, right? And one of the lessons we see over and over again is as people, we get fixated with the building. We get fixated with the edifice. We get fixated with the outside. And Jesus warns His followers, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like the religious leaders who think it's about the externals, but don't have a repentant heart. Don't have a heart that's walking with Jesus. Institutions are great. Build institutions. We hope to build more here. We hope to you know, build a million churches and take over the world. We, we want to do more, right? But only if it's with hearts that are in a proper relationship with God. Well, only if people are following Him. Only if people love Him. And it's not about the externals, but it's about their heart being in submission to Him. Rejoicing in His grace. Hoping in Him, not hoping in their selves and their own strength. Well, that, that first house that we had... Um, it, it was disappointing in some ways. We had a lot of remodeling to do. It was an 80-year-old house. And so a lot of times we look back and we remember those painful memories, right? We remember how we had a house, but it wasn't quite... It was incomplete, you know? Kind of like the people of Israel. We've, we've got a temple, but it's not doesn't quite measure up to the grandeur and the flash of Solomon's temple, and we're still not there yet. But just the other day we found some old digital pictures, found an old computer and we were looking at some old pictures that we'd never moved over and so we were looking at these pictures of our kids when we lived in this house right so we lived in this house when they were in those young years those toddler years those early elementary years we're like man they were cute and all of a sudden we, we didn't care about how hard it was to live in that house anymore right we didn't care about the externals anymore we, we started to really rejoice in, in the love and the good memories that took place on the inside of the house. And I think that's what the people of God were waiting for for those 400 years. They had the house, but they didn't have Jesus. And, and Christmas, no matter what kind of tradition you fall into, Christmas is about celebrating Jesus. He's our hope. So, so build the institutions, celebrate the traditions, but don't do it without Jesus at the heart. Don't do it without Him living on the inside of those walls and those institutions. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You love us and that You came to us in Your Son, Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. Thank You for living with us and being our God. And Lord, we pray that as we build institutions, that we would build them around You. God, help us not to hope in our own strength. Help us not to hope in our own powers of restoration. But help us to hope in You and You alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.